0: We've seen when, you know, big initiatives, green initiatives have happened in countries like Australia and France, you know, energy prices spike, people protest, they abandon it. So if you want to have a transition, it has to be sustainable on many, many levels. In order to make it economically sustainable and politically sustainable, we have to use hydrocarbons. We have to use them. And we need to do it in a smart way. We need to do as much of it in this country as possible because we do it in a cleaner and better way than they do in other countries. We take care of the environment better. Um, and our politicians need to support that. They need to have a realistic perspective and realistic rhetoric on it rather than telling people something that just isn't possible. And that's, that's what we've done right now in in the past few years. And it's hurting us.
1: Hey guys, welcome back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube. Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. Fort Capital is a real estate investment firm based in Fort Worth, Texas, with a track record of transacting more than $1.6 billion in assets throughout Texas, Tennessee, and Florida. The team over at Ford is currently looking to acquire Class B industrial deals between $15 and $100 million throughout Texas, Florida, Tennessee, and now North Carolina and South Carolina. To learn more about Fort Capital, visit www.fortcapitallp.com. If you're anything like me, you're constantly reading. And if you're tired of sifting through dozens of online blogs and Twitter feeds to get the commercial real estate news you need, subscribe to the CRE Daily Newsletter. Think of this email like your smart, no bullshit friend breaking down all the biggest stories, acquisitions, trends, and fundraisings of the day and compiling them into one digestible email that you'll actually enjoy reading. This newsletter is now read by over 65,000 real estate investors, brokers, developers, and deal junkies. The CRE Daily keeps you informed on the top national, regional, and property sector news that matters to your business without all the BS. Give it a try by subscribing free at credaily.com. That's CREDaily.com. For anyone that tried buying a car over the last couple of years, it was not an easy thing to do. I just got a car uh, and had one of the best experiences I've ever had with Frank Kent Cadillac here in Fort Worth, Texas. When you think of Fort Worth businesses, it's hard to not think of Frank Kent Cadillac. Well, that's because they've been around for 87 years And with history like that, they know a thing or two about how to treat their clients, like no dealer markups over MSRP. The price on the sticker is the price you pay. So when you're in the market for a new vehicle, check them out. New inventory is arriving daily from the XT4, 5, and 6 to the CT4 and 5 Blackwings with CPO rates. There is always something in store at fkcadillac.com. That's fkcadillac.com. Frank Kent Cadillac, community driven, locally different since 1935. Cody, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Chris. Good to see you. We uh, we have a big day tomorrow. Your Texas Tech Red Raiders are playing the TCU Horn Frogs. This will this is being recorded on Friday. We'll be releasing it on Tuesday. You have any predictions about what's going to happen?
0: It's a huge day. We're planning on ruining your season. <laughs> That's the goal, at least. <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I think it's going to be a good game. It'll be exciting. A lot of energy in the stadium. Yeah. Wish it wasn't at 11 a.m. Yeah. But it'll be good. People will be fired up. And you've got a secret tailgate thing going on? No, it's not a secret at all. Okay. It's it's, uh, it's going to be a big tailgate. It'll be fun. Okay. It's TCU and Texas Tech tailgate. Okay. Um. There will be a lot of people there, though.
1: All right. Come see us. I'm going to come see you in the morning. Um. All right. When we got, uh, when we were here last was uh, November of 2021. No, November of 2020. Uh, oil was at 42 bucks, 40 bucks, and y'all had not sold yet to Pioneer. So maybe let's just start with kind of what happened from November going forward. And, and I really want to get into the the sale to Pioneer.
0: Yeah. So that company was Double Eagle 3. It was the Third company, private equity backed company we had built. Um, you know the the prior company Double Eagle Two we had sold to Parsley Energy in 2017, and you know the strategy had shifted a little bit. Although we were in the same basin, we were doing essentially the same thing. Um, you know our core competency really is assembling acreage. It's it's buying little bits and pieces, putting them together, making them horizontally drillable, and So that's the strategy we started out with, and that's what we pursued. And um, we did a good job of putting the acreage position together in Double Eagle Three. We got about 100,000 acres. Um, The shift, however, was that because the market demanded it, because A&D market demanded it, we needed to establish more production than we did in Double Eagle Three. So, um, and this is just because the market could no longer buy things on a price per acre basis. It, you know, people wanna know what the price per acre is, but the most important thing is became you know, what is your, how does your EBITDA multiple compare to our EBITDA multiple as a buyer? Um, you know, what the market's given us and is it accretive? Is it your cash flow multiple accretive? Are you accretive to our net asset value from a net present value standpoint? So, it's very important that we establish production to support the value of our acreage essentially. And so, uh, we started running, we got up to seven rigs and when we sold, we were just under 100,000 barrels a day of production, which is a lot of production. I mean, they were, OPEC member nations that don't have much more than that. So, you know, we're really proud of the fact that we got to that point, Um, but, you know, that operational aspect of it brought a lot of new challenges and, you know, interesting things that happened. But I think the biggest challenge we faced was what many companies faced, many industries faced was during that COVID disaster. And you know, pretty close to right after we talked, um, oil, you know, went to zero and then it went to negative for a while. And people honestly thought it was never going to come back and so a lot of companies every company oil and gas company had the conversation of do we keep drilling most i would say made the decision to to really slow down or even stop lay down all their rigs and we debated it heavily um you know and we were all in a time of great stress also just in our personal lives because nobody knew what was going on in the world like you know is the food supply going to (laughs) be disrupted or you know are we going to get COVID and die or one of our kids going to get sick or whatever and so it was a scary time and during all that we had to make like good decisions. And so we all got together and, you know, um the double eagle team is kind of a family and we're all very close. And so, you know, we made the choice very on early on that we're gonna all get together in person and we're gonna be in the office. A lot of the employees work the majority of the employees worked um, work from home, but John and I and, and Josh Gregg and Blake Carpenter and Garrett Martin, we were at the office every day. And so we were able to sit down in person and really talk through this stuff and The decision we made through all that was to keep going, to stay the course. Um, We had set up our balance sheet conservatively so we could weather a downturn because we knew that a downturn would come at one point or another. We didn't know it was going to come as a result of a pandemic, but we said, look, this is a really weird time, but we were prepared for this. We have a great hedge book that's protecting our revenue. You know, we're low leverage. We can weather this storm, and so we're going to keep on drilling. And because we made that choice, we had this really good asset. But because we made that choice and we were able to keep production growing, we were able to sell, you know, last in in May of the following year. Um, and if we hadn't, we wouldn't have been in a position from a cashless standpoint
1: to get the price that we got. Why did the industry? We'll get to that in a second. But why did the industry move for? Well, first off, what did the what was the industry doing when it was valuing things on a price per acre? What did that actually mean? And then why did they decide we shouldn't be doing that anymore? We have to get to EBITDA.
0: Well, I think that what people thought, and they were right to a degree, is that in these resource plays, the acreage is sen- essentially homogenous. Now it's not all homogeneous, but there are very large areas that are the same. And so if you have a certain number of net acres, you're gonna be able to drill a certain number of wells, and it's gonna, you know, the 250th well is gonna work as well as the third well worked, and it's gonna be easy, and you're gonna be able to just roll it out in manufacturing mode, drill these wells, no problems at all. But what we figured out as we tried to work through it is that as you scale things, a lot of problems come up and difficulties happen. Cost overruns, you know, you run into infrastructure issues and things like that. And so, a lot of companies stubbed their toe, missed earnings, you know, disappointed the market relative to what they thought that this was going to be easy and homogenous. Well, it wasn't. And so, the market really made people rein it back in. And so, the market became very focused on, you know, all right, we know you have this much acreage, but how many drillable locations do you have? Yeah. And then beyond that, they wanted to see the proof in the pudding. They wanted to see you, you know, hit your revenue projections and your costs and everything else and they wanted to know you know how many days it was taking you to drill a well so the operational aspect of it and the actual dollars and cents part of it came to the forefront so investors got smarter about how shale plays work and i think more rational and so they just forced a little bit more discipline instead of just having a resource you have to have a business and um, in order to sell you can't just have a resource you can't just have assets you have to have a business that you can sell And so that's what we focused on in Double Eagle 3, and that's what we were able to build. When you're on y'all's website, um, it says something like, y'all
1: are a land-based oil and gas company or land-focused. And then I wrote down bits and pieces. We put bits and pieces together. What are y'all doing? What does that mean? And then why are y'all able to do it at such a scale and really at a level that nobody can really keep up
0: with? Well, I don't think we're doing anything that's super secret or complex or anything right. um we just get in there and are not afraid to take on difficult situations we're not afraid to dig into the weeds you know we're not afraid to go buy a 10 acre parcel not exactly knowing what we're going to do with it just knowing that we will build something around it and do something with it eventually we have that enough confidence in what we do that we're willing to take risk on pieces that you don't exactly know how they fit in when you buy them um, but then also over time, we've just built an understanding of the land situation across the basin. We know how all the pieces fit together and we kind of know how to put them together. But we'll take on things that have very difficult title situations associated with them. And unless you're a landman in the oil and gas business, you may not understand how deep the complexity can truly be. But there can be thousands of owners in a tract, you know, different owners by depth, different owners by royalty. Uh, executive rights can be different than the actual mineral rights. I mean, it, it's a it can be insanely complex. And being able to piece all those things together is really critical, especially in a horizontal world where, you know, you have to have mile and a half to three mile lanes that are ready to drill that are uninterrupted. And in Texas, we don't have forced pooling like they have in other states. So You actually have to work out commercial deals with each owner that owns each foot of that horizontal. And in some cases, it can be, again, thousands of owners. But we are set up to do that. We're organized to do that. We have systems now in place that we've developed over the history of our company where we know how to how to pursue things like that and get them put together. And so that that really has become the key. And now in Double Eagle Four, we we just know it so well and we have our program down so much that it's almost, you know, just second nature to us. It and it's much easier than it was um, a few years ago.
1: So the bits and pieces are putting together those drillings, basically, if exactly where right. one doesn't exist. You all can see something that maybe others. If I was entering the industry tomorrow, I'd look at it and say, "How how in the world would you put this together?" And y'all y'all see a pathway to put it together,
0: right? I mean, you can see the blank space on the map, but you go in there and you're like, "God, I mean, there are all these owners and these impossible people to deal with, and you can never put it together." And some of them probably never will get put together, but we'll find an angle, we'll get in there and, and in a lane, and and figure it out and get it put together. And you know, and we're not afraid to buy a piece that has a title encumbrance or is you know, maybe subject to a lawsuit or something like that. I mean, we'll go in there and take those types of things on and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But more, than often, more often than not over time, we get them figured out and, and uh, make them drillable.
1: Is it fair to say there's been kind of two different types of oil business emerge throughout the shale revolution? Some that maybe fit more like what y'all th- how y'all think about it versus the people that are just pure,
0: can we get oil out of the ground? The people maybe you're selling to? I think the entire industry has gotten pretty smart. Um, All the shale players now are accustomed to doing these acreage swaps, which are critical to getting your lanes put together. Um, They're accustomed to dealing with title issues. The bigger companies were slower to to get to the game, and that gave us a lot of opportunity at the beginning, but now everybody kind of gets it, you know? Um, And so now it's just a scramble for getting the remaining pieces put together. And so every day is hard and competitive, and there are great competitors out in the base and great companies out there. And so. We just do our best to try to get it done and not pay too much for it
1: all right so y'all um y'all made the decision during covid after a lot of discussion to kind of keep drilling which obviously proved to be the correct one um was there ever a moment in those conversations where you thought about laying it down like was there a turning point or was it pretty crystal clear like our goal is to keep going and we're just making sure that we've thought of every reason why we can keep going
0: i think john and i were believe that keep continuing operations was the right thing to do from the beginning. But there were different versions of that. At one point, it was like, we're going to keep drilling, we're going to build, drilled uncompleted wells and maybe complete them later. There's even talk about shutting in our existing production and just keeping it in the ground. But went through the process, thought through all the different angles and came up with just, you know, we got to keep going. Yeah. And we can keep going. Like, again, we didn't know it was going to come from a pandemic, but we knew a downturn was going to happen at some point. We were prepared for this. so. You know we have the balance sheet for it we have the hedge book for it so let's keep moving keep going and you know that's what we did all right so at what point so that was november that we talked i think y'all
1: completed the sale in may or june which would have been six or seven months later yeah all right so november comes we have our podcast i think thanksgiving was right around the corner when did it start becoming clear that you were about to either sell the pioneer or sell in general
0: well i we really sort of built the company to own forever. And I think um, Hollis Sullivan, who's a friend of ours, has told us very well that you know you want to build a company that you want to own forever, and that's how you want to always think about it. So that's what we did. And so um, we knew, though, that in all likelihood, we would sell eventually. So there were a number of companies that we stayed in touch with throughout the the growth and evolution of our company, kept them updated on what we were doing, how many acres we had, how many rigs we were running, our production projections, all those types of things. So there were several companies that were familiar with with our asset, and there was with the size that we became, there was a logical set of buyers. Not everybody could come up with six billion dollars. So we um, we talked to those folks, and then it just as the market kind of re re reawoke, I guess, you know, when when things kind of bounced back, everybody realized, okay, the world's not going to end. There obviously became some interest in uh, companies to be acquisitive, and so. We started hearing from a few, and um, actually received three or four different offers that were not really even solicited. One of them was from Pioneer, and um, you know, for them, it 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 of all the companies that could have bought us, they made the most sense just from an industrial logic standpoint. Our assets were contiguous in many areas; um, we're exactly in the same spots. You know, our infrastructure systems uh, fit together. You know, our operation systems fit together and a lot of times we extended their lanes we you know there are just a lot of efficiencies and so to them our asset had more value than it did to anyone else so they really were the logical buyer you know the question is just are they willing to pay and um, you know they're trading good multiples they're strong very strong very conservatively run company they had the financial ability to do it and so they came to us and just sat down with us and um, you know and we got the deal done you know and um, their top three people came in our office one day, made us an offer and uh, Scott Sheffield said, here's the offer. We're not going up another penny. (laughs) And we're like, you know, yeah, right. So of course we went back and countered to him and he said, no, I'm not going up another penny and he meant it. (laughs) And so, um, so we, we, we did the deal and I think it, it was a really good deal for us, you know, with the value we had in it, we were able to make a great multiple and, and for them, it was extremely creative. Um, their stock price has gone up tremendously since since the deal, not just because of our deal, but it's been a a good thing operationally for them. From an asset standpoint, it's been great. And So, you know, it's always good when a deal works out for both parties and everybody's happy with it. And I think that's where it is with them and relationships great with them. We had a transition period and worked with them for several months, helped them, um, you know, understand our asset and helped them with some land stuff, with some operational stuff. And it was great. And uh, we love those guys. I mean, it's it's fantastic. So
1: you kind of answered the question. When I think of a $6.4 billion negotiation, I can think, oh, man, it's got to take forever. This happened in a relatively short period of time.
0: Yeah, it was a very compressed time frame. Um, There were some different, and I can't remember exactly what they were, but some different uh, reporting periods and things that were going on with them. We needed to get it done before a certain date if we're going to do it. And so we agreed on the deal, and then it was a mad rush to get the documents put together and deal that size and we you know uh we took one billion in cash the rest was in stock so taking stock like that there's a lot of you know sec type stuff you have to do and regulatory things you have to go through and so there was a lot of work that went into getting all that done i mean very late nights up to the office three or four in the morning and back at seven and you know and that was for you know a couple weeks and their team did the exact same thing you know they worked extremely hard to get it done which we really appreciated and again they're very top guys are plugged into it and they're super smart and so um you know, and, and very commercial. And so we were able to work through all the tough issues and there are a few things that it came down to and we got them figured out and done and, you know, the rest is history.
1: In a deal like that, whether it's your deal or just any deal like that, what blows up a deal like that, that you don't own what you think you're going to own or, because once you kind of say, this is what we got, they probably
0: already know the geology, like what could blow a deal like that up? Man, it could be anything, yeah. you know, small things, big things. Um, you know, when you're talking about stock, it could be how restricted they want to have the stock be. Okay. When you can sell it, when you can't, um, you know, it can be any number of things. It can be an asset level thing. The good thing about our asset is that we are so focused on the land side and we knew what it took to have a marketable asset that our land is pretty clean. Yep. And so, you know, that was never going to be a problem. Our, our operations were clean. Um, you know, we have a great operations staff that, um, you know, we have been a part of our team for a long time. So things were good there. It was really just deal term type yeah. stuff.
1: Alright, so you make the sale. That's in uh, May or April of 2022. You take a year off, and then you've just raised $2 billion more is pretty much rinse and repeat, do it again.
0: Yeah, so we had an 11-month non-compete. We closed May the 4th, so that non-compete burned off in April. And um, yeah, so we over that year, we thought a lot about what we're going to do next and how we're going to do it. For a while, we thought about not working with private equity. We didn't know really the scale, of the opportunity that was going to be there. And so If it was going to be relatively small we thought about doing it with just our own money we thought about doing it with just our own money plus some friends and family or some family offices things like that but as we moved forward and looked at things and thought about things we saw there could be a bigger opportunity Um, we had a relationship with ncap in houston Uh, gary peterson is one of the founding partners there he's a big texas tech guy known him forever great guy john and i had a lunch with him just about uh, texas tech stuff so what are you guys doing Well, we're thinking about this and that and he said "Well, we ought to do a deal we've been wanting to do a deal forever and john and i said well here are the terms that we need and he said all right done you want me to write you a check right now (laughs) and so um we did the deal with them and you know brought in some of our old a lot of our older investors that have been with us a long time or are still in with us Um, apollo is still in with us um and they're just not leading the deal this time and so you know pulled all that together and got it done and hit the ground running in april and We've already gotten a lot more acres than I expected we are get at this point. We're running two rigs right now. We're going to add two more in the first quarter. So, you know, things are going well. That's awesome.
1: Well, I'm sure if we do this podcast and again in a year or two, maybe we'll have something else to talk about. Who knows? <laughs> I hope so. But you are building a company for a lifetime. So maybe yeah. not. Maybe we'll have to wait. All right. Oil's at, uh, I think it was at 92 this morning when I checked. Gas was at like 650. So now let's kind of just move the conversation to just energy and how you see the energy markets today. Mm -hmm. Um, What we've learned, we've learned about what the financial markets want to see, but we're also seeing what politicians want to see, global leaders want to see. So let's kind of dive into the current state of the energy markets. Um, Maybe why we're at 95 and and the big things driving what you see in today's environment.
0: Well, right now we really have have an energy supply crisis globally, especially in certain geographies. Like Europe, is energy starved pretty bad, and you know they're in for some tough times moving forward. Um, but the reason we're in this position is because there's just been vast underinvestment in the industry in the last several years. You have to continue developing, exploring, you know, finding new oil and in produ- producing new oil in order to supply the global need. Um, the sort of general thinking or assumption from a lot of people is that oil, the need for oil is going away. They think, well, we're all going to go to use electric vehicles and we're going to electrify the economy globally. So we're not going to need so much oil. So that's a dying industry. So I don't want to invest in that. There's also been pressure from ESG, you know, certain pensions, a lot of them, especially in Europe and the coast here and this country cannot invest in oil and gas or don't want to. And so that's taken a ton of money out of the system. So 20... 17 2018, somewhere in there, there are 90 billion dollars in private equity um, available to the industry now. There's about 30. Mm. Um, similar things are happening in commercial banking. You just, you know, the size and scale of commitments that banks were willing to make to oil and gas has have gone way down. In many cases, especially a lot of the European banks are completely out of the business. So you just can't get the capital that you once were once able to get. And also, the public companies, like I talked about earlier, have been forced to be much more disciplined. So they're not ramping rigs during times of higher prices they're staying you know they're paying big dividends they're buying stock back those types of things and so you're just not seeing the growth in production that we had in the past plus the big international projects are not happening like the big majors which do those projects they're investing in you know renewable natural gas and solar farms and all that kind of stuff they're not investing the big billions of dollars in these offshore african projects or whatever where huge amounts of production come from so we don't have enough of it and the reality is that you know, current projections show oil demand continuing to grow through 2050. Meanwhile, the base production is continuing to decline, to decline as it naturally does. So we just have a huge supply gap. So who's going to fill that? And right now, I don't know. The problem we have is, again, this just broad perception that it's going away. And so people don't want to invest in it. That's wrong, but that's the perception. Secondly, you know, we have all this political rhetoric, which is extremely damaging. It's like we got one foot on the gas and one foot on the brakes. Our administration currently is the best example of that you know Biden last week comes out and says oil companies need to increase their production if they don't we're going to tax you well that doesn't help right because people are aware. well how much do they need to produce are you going to tax them if you're going to tax them that might hurt my investment so I don't want to invest in that what are you going to do to them and so the rhetoric is just very non-helpful and if we are going to prevent ourselves from being in a huge bind you know, we, that's got to stop. People got to say, we want all the energy we can get. And we want as much of it as we can get from this country, because that's what makes us the strongest and the most safe. But we're not willing to say that yet. What I'm afraid is that, you know, we've already seen quite a bit of pain. We've seen pain at the pump. You know, we've seen pain in electric cost. You know, we're going to see, you know, disruptions in power supply this winter, probably. Um, so we're already seeing some pain, but I'm afraid that, In order for people to come to the realization that we really need this stuff there's going to have to be a lot of pain ahead you know and i'm one i actually believe that global warming climate change is a concern like i think we need to be aware of the amount of carbon that's in the atmosphere but i think that we have to be realistic about it and have to recognize that if we're going to have a transition eventually it has to be a sustainable transition now It has to be environmentally sustainable and that's when you talk about the word sustainable that's what people usually think about but it also has to be economically sustainable and if we go headlong in the renewables too quickly when the technology is not there the infrastructure is not there all we're going to do is make it to where people are going to abandon it or want to abandon it because everything is going to get too expensive and there's not going to be enough energy and that's what we're seeing right now we've gone too fast so there has to be a transition it has to be a true transition and that comes with a lot of natural gas it comes with trying to get you know, developing company, countries away from burning like biomass and, and dung and those types of things, which they're doing right now, which are hugely, much more carbon intensive and dirty. We got to get them using natural gas. We need to have a lot more nuclear power. We need, to, we need to have an all of the above approach because developing economies want to increase their quality of life. They want to increase their lifespans. They need energy to do that. There's a huge gap in what is wanted and what we actually have. And so we're setting ourselves up for a huge problem right now what we're seeing with energy prices increasing the way they have instead of a transition into renewables we're actually seeing a transition into coal china is building an enormous number of coal plants right now germany who took all theirs offline took their nuclear offline and made this huge investment in wind energy they're turning their coal plants back on right now well coal is way dirtier than natural gas is and so if we had just been smart in the last few years and we had permitted gas pipelines in this country country and lng export facilities Europe would be in a much better position right now because they would be burning our gas instead of having to rely on Russian gas. Um, and you know everybody would be much more safer and secure. You know, it also has to be politically sustainable, right? This is geopolitically sustainable, so we can't have imbalances and weaknesses created in the energy supply that cause, that give people like Putin opportunity to, to cause problems, which is, he's exactly done. I mean, he knew Germany and, and Europe, Western Europe had become weak from an energy standpoint, and he had them, and so he took advantage of it. And we're gonna continue to see that. We've seen when, you know, big initiatives, green initiatives have happened in countries like Australia and France, you know, energy prices spike, people protest, they abandon it. So if you wanna have a transition, it has to be sustainable on many, many levels. In order to make it economically sustainable and politically sustainable, we have to use hydrocarbons. We have to use them. And we need to do it in a smart way We need to do as much of it in this country as possible because we do it in a cleaner and better way than they do in other countries. We take care of the environment better. um, And our politicians need to support that. They need to have a realistic perspective and realistic rhetoric on it rather than telling people something that just isn't possible. And that's that's what we've done right now in, in the past few years, and it's hurting us.
1: Let's take a quick break to highlight this episode's sponsor, Juniper Square. If you aren't familiar with Juniper Square, it's an easy to use all-in-one investment management software designed specifically for real estate owners. We have been using it at Fort Capital for several years now, and it has completely revamped the experience we are able to provide our investors through reporting, management, and efficiency. Here's Brandon Sedloff, Managing Director at Juniper Square, explaining more about their platform.
0: We saw this really big shift where, you know, Today, if you're an investor, whether you're
1: a high net worth investor or you're an institutional investor, you have a lot more options if you wanna invest in real estate as an asset class compared to maybe five or even 10 years ago. And with the kind of proliferation of options, one of the things that, that happened was that as an investor, you start to have a lot more control. And with control, you can make more demands. And with those demands, you can place those on your managers. And while that might make life difficult for some managers who aren't ready to adapt, one of the key demands is, hey, We need more transparency. Like, I need to know if I'm going to give you $100, how is that $100 doing? Where is it invested and what is the return on my investment? You can check out episode 37 to listen to my full conversation with Brandon or visit cjunipersquare.com for more information. That's s-e-e-junipersquare.com. And now back to the show. We'll break that into a couple things. Okay, the lack of capital. That comes from pretty much everything you just said, the the, the, the decades-long building narrative that it's going um, to be gone, it's dirty, it's not good for the earth, et cetera. So we've lost capital. Is there any sign, as you see it right now, with prices high, er- Europe's in turmoil, Russia's in Ukraine? you know, lots of things going on around the world that there's anybody that's that that was once saying no, we're never getting back in, saying, All right, maybe we're gonna get back in, or is it still dead silent now? We're world?
0: starting to see a little bit of shift, but okay. it's it's not significant at this point. Um, you know, and I think the shift is coming from people who are more practical investors. They say, hey, look, we actually see a business case for this now. Yep. We think prices are going to be higher because of this underinvestment. So we're gonna get in. So we're seeing some of that. Some of the banks are coming back. There is now a pretty strong push back against ESG investing because a lot of the ESG funds have not performed well, but also just because they've realized it doesn't make sense. Like that's being like the arbiters of morality and social good. That's not the role of the financial industry. The role of the financial industry is to efficiently and properly allocate capital to the highest return projects. And people, individuals can make choices what they consume and what they don't consume. But the only role of the financial industry is to allocate capital to the highest and best use, and when they get into other things, that creates inefficiency. There's lower return on investment, um, not just from a pure return on that individual investment standpoint, but also from an overall GDP standpoint. If if capital is allocated inefficiently, then our our GDP suffers, our standard of living suffers, and and that's what we're seeing. And so people are pushing back against it. There was a big article in the wall street journal this week on that exact topic. I think people are starting to see it and understand it. So maybe, maybe the tide is turning a little bit, but we have to keep talking about it. We have to keep people, people reminding people of it. But honestly, unfortunately, I think it's what I said earlier is just we're gonna have to feel it. We're gonna have to feel it. Okay. So
1: Biden started his, um, election or, or getting elected with, I'm going to end fossil fuels forever. Now, last week, he told domestic producers, you have to grow production or else we're going to tax you. Weeks before that, he was in Saudi Arabia and Venezuela. So, foot on the gas, foot on the brake. Is this, do you think this is a last political desperation to stick to, like, I, I promise green, I'm going to try and stay green, but also not, like, or are we starting to see this unfold? And, and maybe the Democratic
0: Party starting to come back around? Biden has a lot of smart people in his administration. I think he has a lot of people who don't really understand the energy industry. I think they bought into the narrative that this transition was going to happen very quickly and easily. And so that's the direction they went. But it also was politically convenient for them because their base really wants and believes that you know we need to go net zero very quickly. And um, so I think he's he's, again, one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake. He's trying to straddle the fence a little bit because they've come to realize that they need oil and gas production Yeah, they they know that they have to not only does the economy need it but they need it politically but at the same time they want to try to keep the promises they made and keep the people on and you know that are their core base happy so it's a tough position that they're in um i think that they if they're going to do the right thing they're going to have to take some some licks from their base and um they're going to have to support us more Yeah, i don't know you know after tuesday are they going to really care I mean, because there's nothing else that we can done to them, because I think it's going to be a pretty strong uh, performance for the Republicans on Tuesday, but, um, you know, we'll see what happens. I'm hopeful that they're going to come around and really try to help people because ultimately right now, I mean, these high prices and, you know, the high prices energy, energy denominates the cost of everything, yep. food, housing, clothing, everything you buy every day has a huge component of it that comes from energy. And so that it's a, this is probably the biggest contributor to inflation is energy cost. Yep. So the people that are hurt the most by it are the people that they say that they care the most about, which are, you know, low and middle income people. And so if they truly do care about those people, I'm hopeful that they'll do the right thing. Yep. But I'm not confident that they will. Yep. Um, how much
1: is, in your opinion, oil prices were already rising pretty quickly. I can't remember where they were at when Russia invaded Ukraine. I'm, I, I think Russia, Ukraine has an impact on the energy markets. But now, eight months later, is it a big... Like, if, if Russia-Ukraine ended tomorrow, would prices settle down a bunch, or has the, the market kind of normalized itself around the Russia-Ukraine Well,
0: that, that war has certainly increased prices, there's yep. no doubt about that, but the, the problem was building long before that, just because of what I said, because of the underinvestment. Now, if they come to a resolution tomorrow and the war ends, I don't know that longer term there is going to be a huge difference, because now we can't really trust the Russian supply anymore because we don't know what they're going to do so you know people there's always going to be that that geopolitical kind of premium in the price because of the risk that's there and so i think this is going to be a persisting problem that and it always has been in oil markets that that political instability um you know it keeps prices high and, and i think it's heightened even more and i mean there's all this saber rattling between saudi arabia and iran right now that could blow up any moment and so again it just goes back to we need as much production in this country as possible from a national security standpoint, from an economic standpoint, for every reason, from an environmental standpoint, we need more energy here. And we need to support domestic producers and make sure that they're getting everything they need to produce here. It's it's the only thing that makes sense. And that's why, you know, through the ESG movement, through the divestment movement, and everything else, the ones that have been hurt the most have been domestic producers. It's held us back the most. And that's what's crazy about it. I mean, ESG doesn't affect Rosnaff or Saudi Aramco, right? right? I mean, they're doing whatever they want to do. It hurts you know pioneer, it hurts Exxon. it hurts you know people who are doing stuff here that we need to be supporting. yep
1: Let's talk a little bit just about um, kind of labor and the next generation getting into this industry. So it's one thing to say tomorrow that you know everybody now aligns that we need to to produce domestically, but there's been a constant degre- degradation of kids in college, people growing up aspiring to be in the industry. And that that's also coming at us pretty quickly. Not just in the oil field, but in geology, exploration, across all industry. Kids aren't growing up anymore saying this is an industry I want to be in. What do you think? Like, what what are you what are your feelings there?
0: Yeah, it's a big problem. Like at Texas Tech, we've seen something like an eighty percent decrease in the number of kids that are doing petroleum engineering now. <laughs> engineering department numbers are still a lot of kids want to be engineers, are just not choosing petroleum. So it's a problem. So I think there are a couple things to it. I think number one. We need them to better understand that there are really good long-term career opportunities in the industry. Kids that are getting a petroleum engineering degree or a land management degree or whatever it is, come out making getting a job and making good money. There are there's opportunity there. So, you know, it's not going away. It's right. gonna be here for a long time. We've got to give them to understand that. The second thing we gotta give them to understand though is that there is a valuable purpose in entering the industry. Like kids, everybody, but especially people today want to think that the work they're doing is helping the world, is benefiting society, that they're doing something that's meaningful and good. And I think the perception is is that, you know, a lot of people is that oil industry is evil, like we're hurting the environment, we're destroying the world, all these things. But really what they need to know is that we're helping the entire world come out of poverty. You know, we are keeping costs down. We are making lives better around the world because people really do need this product and there's not a solution for it right now. There's not a substitute. And so, I think if they understand those things that they can make money and they can do good in this industry and and have a positive benefit on society through being in the industry, I think more people get into it, but that's not something that could be done easily, and I think that it's gone so far, and there's such a gap right now in the in the workforce that again, I think we're going to have to feel a lot of pain before the problem is solved but uh, manpower right now is a huge issue in our industry. The bet, the best marketing I've seen in the industry
1: has been in the last three or four months with public company, CEOs writing letters to the white house and publicly posting them, it basically just being very candid and honest and not shying away from the topic. But the, the questions really, why is there not, I mean, why at NAPE or when y'all all get together at these conferences is somebody not saying let's all chip in a couple you know, everybody chip in a few million or whatever, the big boys chip in more and let's have a marketing. No, I mean,
0: we are doing it. We're doing everything we can and people are speaking out. There's some great voices in the industry uh, right now that, you know, like a lot of the public company CEOs are doing a great job. There are other private individuals doing a great job. It's just nobody wants to amplify it. Nobody wants to hear it because it doesn't fit with this narrative, this political narrative. And I don't want to be the one that's like, you know, the media is doing this to us or that to us, but there truly is selection and what gets actually talked about right and instead of talking about the reality of the world and the energy system and the you know people just think well you know they take it for granted I turn the light on it comes on they don't realize how much goes into that and so we got to start we got to somehow have people talk about it more and here and it has to be publicized on a broader, broader scale and the mainstream media has to pick it up and start communicating with people and telling the truth like i said the wall street journal had a great piece this last week i think they're doing a good job and they're 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 telling the true story, but but it has to be it has to go deeper, it has to go wider, and you know it, everybody has to be kind of understanding what the reality of the situation is. You said something about poverty alleviating out of poverty, and
1: basically, I'm assuming what you what we're talking about also is not just we, we've already seen what oil and gas has done for America, but when we're talking about other Americans tend to just think about America. They're not thinking about the other six and a half billion people on the globe three or four billion of them have still never driven a car yet or so when we're talking about oil and gas it's not just for america it's for the whole globe and maybe just go a little bit further on like what that does for this huge part of the world and how them succeeding lifts all boats
0: yeah there are still over a billion people in the world that don't have electricity you know don't have refrigeration don't have very basic things they don't use plastics you know and and we take all those things for granted in this country and we don't see the the side of the world even when we travel and we go to europe or we go to these nice places like oh everything's great Everyone, no it's pretty bad in a lot of places and those people want to drive cars um, they want to have air conditioning they want to have all the nice things that we have and they should and and we can deliver that to them but they can't afford to acquire it through using renewable systems it's just too expensive and too difficult So it's going to require hydrocarbons to lift those people out of poverty. And, you know, that's the greatest thing that we've done in the world, the energy industry has done, is it's lifted billions and billions of people out of poverty. And the more energy that's available, the less poor people are. And so, you know, that is the great social, global social purpose that we have in our industry, is helping people around the world who don't live as long, whose lives are, are terrible, that have to, you know, go and daily, you know, go and pull water and, and bring it back to the house and all, you know, it, it so many things that we take for granted, people just don't have. And we need to be aware of that and think about that as we enact our own policies. Because if we starve the global system of energy, which we're doing right now, we are going to hurt billions of people. We are going to kill millions of people. And um, you know, I think that's something that we just don't take into account. We talk about, you know, that we catastrophize huh. these global warming scenarios and we say all these people are going to die from you know, these different weather events that are going to occur or whatever, famines or, um, you know, or heat waves and all this stuff. But the reality is if people don't have energy, a lot of people are going to die. Yep. And weather-related deaths have actually decreased significantly over the past hundred years because we have air conditioning, we have heating, you know, we have nice homes that can withstand storms and those kinds of things. Well, they don't have that in the rest of the world. And so if we don't provide that to them, they're going to continue to die from very, you know, basic things. And so before we start getting too carried away with, you know, being privileged and taking our life for granted, we need to think about the fact that people around the world don't have the things that we have, and we need to find ways to get it to them. And right now, technologically and economically, the only way we can deliver those things to people is through use of
1: hydrocarbons. Is, and and I haven't honestly seen much on it. I've seen a little bit here and there. I I saw some earlier on in in the year, uh, a few countries where the oil and gas was kind of getting choked off and people were rioting pretty quickly But is there any, do you have any knowledge of what is going on in some of these parts of the world right now as prices
0: are getting higher? Anything that comes to mind? Yeah, I mean, look at what's happening in in the UK right now. Look what's happening in Spain. I mean, they're rationing energy. Uh, You know, they're not going to be able to, they're going to be cold this winter. You know, Um, they're not going to be allowed to keep their homes and their businesses over a certain temperature. Um, You know, it's destroying their industry. Small businesses are being destroyed in Western Europe right now. They just can't afford to pay the electric bill. Mm Mm-hmm. And, th- you know, those are developed countries where things are pretty, pretty good. Um, and so, you know, I, it's hard to get specific reports on what's happening in the third world, but it, it's got to be even worse because they can less afford more expensive energy than right. Western Europe can. And so um, it's bad. And I, you know, don't have statistics or anything, but I can promise you that people are dying as a result of it. Yep. And this winter, it's going to be even worse if they can't afford their electric bill. Um, you know, food is going to be an issue. Fertilizer is already an issue in Europe because they they can't, they can't don't have the gas to manufacture the fertilizer that they need. And so crop yields are going to be down. Food food cost is going to be higher. So it's a bad, bad situation. And uh, we got to get sober pretty fast before a lot of people get hurt. Well, I'm trying to keep it on a let's get sober track
1: by asking the, the tougher questions. Even if we said today, just flipped a switch and said, all right, we're all pro oil and gas just speak to what it actually takes to come back online because a lot of people sometimes assume okay we drill a well we have a barrel of oil tomorrow but just as a nation maybe as a globe to really rally back to a pro fossil fuels pro hydrocarbon world are we talking years 5 years 10 years to right the ship and get everything kind of back to to working again
0: yeah it's going to take a while because yeah. The underinvestment has taken a while and like these big mega projects international projects take years and years to explore and find and develop so you know and that's not really my area of expertise but i know those things can take up to a decade even here in this country where we're always known as a swing producer we can bring production online pretty quickly we have serious bottlenecks on the service side there just aren't enough people and machines um, right now because a lot of them left the industry and weren't maintained all those kinds of things and so we just don't have the infrastructure right now so there's got to be reinvestment of that but if, even if we were to start drilling a pad today, that thing may not come on for seven or eight months. Yeah. And so it takes a really long time for that to pr- production to come on. And so, again, I, I'm afraid that it's too late. It's too late for the, to avoid some of the worst effects that are going to happen. And I hope I'm wrong, but I think that there is going to be a major crunch coming up. And, you know, this winter, I think Europe has decent gas storage available. Next winter could be really bad. They just flat out run out of gas and that's a disaster. And so, you know, we're going to have to be, get pretty creative and pretty aggressive to find ways to solve that problem.
1: So I'm just assuming again, I know you're not a Europe expert, but they're going to blow through their gas this year, mm-hmm. but then you could say, okay,
0: but they have all next year to restore it. Well, but they don't have the Russian supply and that's what they were totally relying on. So if that Russian supply isn't there, it has to come from LNG. They don't have enough LNG import facilities to fill their storage. So what are they going to do?
1: So does a is a is it an, isn't. And again, now I'm not making you a war expert, but is the ideal situation for the Russian war to stop, but somehow in that get Russia to keep supplying gas to Europe in some type of agreement?
0: Yeah, maybe. I'm not sure what the solution is there, but yeah. ultimately they cannot be reliant on that supply. Yeah, they just they can't do that to themselves because they're so vulnerable if they do. Yep. Um, OK, let's get back to
1: the Permian for a little bit. Um, I read something the other day 25 or in 2025 2026 we're going to start running out of tier 1 acreage and we're going to move into tier 2 tier 3 acreage. First question just what are the different
0: tiers what do they mean? The tiers are typically based on the return that you get on the investment from drilling a well. Okay. So the highest return wells are tier 1 and and it goes down by tier. I do think that a lot of companies are running out of their best locations there's a finite number of them. And so you're going to see, you know, the the production return on each dollar invested decrease over time so that makes the problem even more of a problem right (laughs) really what we need is more investment in technology and exploration in this country because there hasn't been a new shale play discovered in quite a while um so you know that has to happen that but investors again don't want people don't want companies investing in these projects that are years out that may or may not work out they want them paying dividends they want them you know to make the next quarter so That attitude has to change and I don't see it really changing. So you're probably going to continue to see diminishing return, you know, per rig returns from a production standpoint in the Permian and elsewhere. And, um, you know, that, that again just makes the, makes the treadmill harder to stay on because the base production, the existing production, the wells have been drilled continue to decline and it's harder and harder to keep that production up as the newer and newer wells become less and less productive. Back to th- what you
1: just said about uh, paying the dividends, and this was something that I think Exxon's CEO talked about this week or last week, um, but he said something along the lines of, you guys asked us to pay our, di- our our free cash flow as dividends to investors, so we're putting money in the American people's pocket, but it's kind of a double whammy, because while that sounds good, it also means that money's not going into exploration. Right. Is there going to be any hey, maybe we pay a smaller dividend, keep more to explore, or is it just for well, now? Well, that's what,
0: that's what should be happening because just from a corporate finance standpoint, you know, they can still make tremendous returns, you know, greater yeah. than 50% rates of return on the wells they're drilling. So, you know, we learned in school and business school, like you, you got to make that investment. You don't pay a dividend as long as you have that kind of opportunity to invest at those high rates of return, but that's not what investors want right now. Yeah, And so it's just, that is not really changing. It hasn't changed yet. Um, Maybe we'll start to see a little bit of a shift, but it's gonna take some people stepping out there and saying, look, we know what you want. We're not gonna do it. Their stock price is gonna take a big hit. They're gonna to have to go through some pain, um, but it'll be the high, more highly regarded companies that can do it first. We've seen EOG, which is a great company, do it a little bit. They have been they were the first ones to say, we're gonna start growing again at a higher rate. And so I, I think you're gonna to start to see more and more companies do that, but they're gonna have a near-term hit to their stock when they do it. If they say we're gonna decrease dividend and put more in the ground, You know, investors are going to sell their stock. Okay, and just give a little bit of. I think you just said fifty percent returns,
1: but for folks that don't know the basic math, oil's at ninety two dollars today. What does that look like financially to the person drilling a well? Assuming you know tier one acreage in a Permian, you drill a good well. What's the rate of return at ninety two bucks?
0: Well, it depends on the cost of the well being drilled, and our costs have gone up, you know, tremendously over the last because of supply chain issues because of. The cost of commodities that we use, the cost of labor, everything has gotten way more expensive, and so really the returns we're getting at ninety dollars are not that much different than they were at you know fifty or sixty dollars because the cost is higher. Mm. So it's the return on the invested dollar that we're looking at. But you know there are areas in the tier one where you're still well over one hundred percent rates of return IRR. I don't know where else you can get that, (laughs) and so we should be putting as much money into that as possible. But even in the you know the lower tiered acreage, it's still over fifty percent. And those are great returns. And, you know, that compound's pretty
1: fast. And in a shale play, 100% IRR, like you said, it's manufacturing. It's not like you're drilling a well hoping to hit oil. It's like, nope, it's there. We're getting this 100%. Yeah, and
0: there's variability from well to well. But if you drill enough of them, you know almost exactly in a group of 50 wells what the average production is going to be. Right. So it's very predictable. It's not risky. There is some operational risk, but even that's been reduced because we've just drilled so many of them Now we know how to do it so uh yeah i mean it's a it's outside of commodity price fluctuations it is as close to a guaranteed return as you can get
1: and i know that uh you said we haven't found any new shale plays and i asked you this two years ago um is there any technology better fracking better anything on the horizon that is looking positive to get more oil out
0: per dollar spent everything right now is pretty incremental it's like small improvements and efficiencies and those are great and we find those all the time every company's working on that we share a lot of ideas together the industry is very good at cooperating with each other and so everybody's doing pretty close to the same thing now there are some new zones people are looking at even in the permian that are, look like they're going to work pretty well um, you know and i think longer term like we have in a lot of reservoirs they're going to be um, enhanced oil recovery maybe co2 flooding maybe water flooding you might see some refracking going on out there where people go and refracking an old well. I think that'll be kind of the next stage of development. And so a lot more oil will continue to come out. But those technologies are still kind of nascent. And again, people aren't wanting to invest money in those projects because yeah. they're just under so much pressure to pay the dividends and not spend money. And so, um, you know, I do think we're going to see more of that over time. And people are talking about it. So I'm encouraged by that. If you... Uh the old Klein shale something that
1: everybody went all in on put a lot of money out and then it went away pretty quickly
0: did it go away because there was no oil or because it was too expensive or both well it didn't work very well (laughs) Um, why well just geologically that you know it just didn't work I mean the wells would come in really big and they fell off really fast and so it didn't work but there are some areas where it is working now and people are are drilling it. We now call it the Wolf Camp D instead of call it the, calling it oh, the Klein. That's better. We've rebranded it. <laughs> so, but in further deeper in the basin, you know, a lot of the Klein Shale was kind of on the east side of the basin. They called it the Eastern Shelf. That was where the play kind of took off. Further down into the basin, we're starting to see a lot of great Wolf Camp D results. And so I'm optimistic that we might be able to push it a little further east and have some, have some success in that. So that could be one um you know people are talking about the deeper gas zones in the basin now so that it could be there could be some things there some uphole zones as well but the permian is the gift that keeps on giving people have always said old guys the best place to find oil is where the oil is so you know in the, in these old old fields just a lot of hydrocarbons in that system and so i'm i think that they're going to continue to be things that are discovered out there
1: yeah and i asked about decline just because i'm assuming there's probably lots of shales like that that got abandoned that Mm -hmm. might might have a chance
0: yeah there's no doubt and there are those in other basins too yeah i'm not as familiar with the other basins but it's just a matter of spending the time and money on it it's hard to figure out you gotta you know the first wells that you drill in those plays cost you know 25 million (laughs) dollars or whatever and they may or may not work and then one might work but then the next one might you know might not not it's just you never know and so it's hard the big boys and the ones that have to do it. And um, right now the big boys are under so much pressure, they just don't want to spend the money.
1: All right. I didn't have this question here. I know you're not a geologist, but I'm assuming you know the answer to this. Why did the Permian Basin end up being the place where all the oil
0: sat, settled? Well, it was a shallow sea a okay. long time ago. Okay. And I guess a bunch of dinosaurs died right there. Okay. And they became oil. No, I mean So even the dinosaurs loved Texas. <laughs> yeah. No, all the everything <laughs> flowed into that little shallow sea there. It was just teeming with life and plant life and animal life and microbial life and you know all this you know this uh rich material developed that had a lot of organic material in it and um it it just made oil and so that was that was basically everything just accumulated right there a long time ago and the dumbest question of
1: all time we can't man make oil i think you actually can okay
0: but it's just not very efficient and not at scale
1: yeah all right. Well, we'll we're going to move on to NCAA. But before um, we, we've talked about just kind of pain and we don't want the pain to come, but it might be the solution to rechanging how we think about oil. Um, we're running low on strategic reserves. We could make some arguments. There's been some political stunts to keep oil prices low if you had to make a prediction of where that will peak in 2023 do you have a, a number
0: well it's it's a very complicated calculus that goes into coming up with that part of his supply side which i'm very bullish on the part i don't know about is what the economy is going to do because the macro economic picture affects demand significantly and so if we see a deep recession which i think there's a high likelihood of that could abate prices quite a bit um but if like China comes back online, which oil's up today because, you know, China is opening back up and and picking up activity again. If you see that, then oil prices could be supported. But I think even in the in the downturn case, I think oil prices are still going to be pretty high just because of the supply side. So just depends on how deep the recession goes. Yep. Fair enough. We talked about oil. Uh, one of the things
1: that um, I think has been really cool and something you've been, you've written on uh, you've kind of been at the the forefront on is the NCIA adopting the NIL rules. Mm -hmm. So basic question, what is the NIL? What happened? And then we'll
0: talk about how you feel about it and and such. So last summer in July, there was kind of a cascade of events that occurred. Uh, There's some court cases, some state law changed, and essentially it became legal for individuals and businesses to pay college athletes for use of their name, image, and likeness. And the original idea is that you're gonna be able to pay a kid to go sign memorabilia. You're gonna pay him if you have a car dealership, you can pay him to be on a commercial or a restaurant or whatever. And so kids can capitalize on the value of their brand, which is great. And so it's sort of, when that happened, it happened on a legislative level and on a judicial level, and there was no really regulation of it. So for the past year, year and a half, it's been the complete wild, wild west. It seems like there are no rules, or there are some, but the NCAA hasn't been aggressive in enforcing those. And so people are just doing all kinds of crazy stuff, paying players millions of dollars. Um, You know, I think in many cases it's been very destructive. So there are two basic sources of NIL. The first is what I talked about, where it's just the pure commercial, the true NIL. And then there's the other side, which is these collectives. And what collectives are is groups of boosters, alumni that get together and pool their money, and then go pay players with that money. And so a lot of those have been formed. Most schools, most Power Five programs have a collective now. And uh, we formed one at Texas Tech, um, you know, going on a year ago now, called the Matador Club, with the idea being that we want to do this in a responsible way. Being a former player, I know that football is not an individual sport. And I saw a lot of programs chasing these individual recruits, paying them a whole bunch of money, they never played it down, they're just one guy. You get a great quarterback, but if you don't have a good offensive line, he's not going to be very effective. So what we wanted to do is build a, a system that, first of all, follows the rules, that does things the right way. That doesn't hurt the kids more than it helps them. Because I don't think that giving a, a high school kid a couple hundred grand is going to make his life better. It might actually make it worse. Yep. But then next, we want something that's going to build the whole team. And so we got money raised, and Texas Tech is... Extremely passionate. We're going to see that tomorrow, hopefully, at amen Carter Stadium. <laughs> we have a huge alumni base, more than 300,000 people, and they're relatively affluent. So, you know, we've had a pretty strong ability to raise money. So, we raised a pool of capital, and the first contracts we did were with the football team. We signed 105 players. So, it was the, you know, 85 or so scholarship kids plus 20 walk ons. And we pay them each $25,000 a year. So, the star quarterback doesn't make any more than the true freshman offensive lineman who's redshirted the goal there being that over time that's going to build the team it's going to keep kids happy keep them around it's going to make them feel supported it's going to keep them comfortable a lot of these kids come from pretty bad backgrounds they don't have a lot of family support they need that money and so we think this is really going to help them and over time it's going to build our program we've seen a much more solid locker room this year at texas tech than you've seen in a lot of places that have done it different ways So, so far, so good. You know, I think it's working well, and I I hope that we can be an example of the right things to do. Like I said, we're following all the rules. Um, You know, we're, the exchange of values, these kids in exchange for the money that they're receiving, they're doing charity work in the community, which is great for the community. It's really helped raise awareness of a lot of lesser known charities in the Lubbock area. It's connected the kids with the community. It's gotten people to know them. It's been fantastic in that regard. Um, you know, we're not inducing recruits. We're not talking to kids before they get on campus. We'll sign you once you're there, but we're not going to, you know, we're signing. Now, I think a lot of recruits know that tech has a strong NIL program. And so it's probably going to indirectly help our recruiting, but we're doing things the right way. And we're being very careful about that. We're doing all the, all the reporting properly. We're following all the rules. Um, and so, you know, I think things are, are going well out there and I'm excited about it. I'm excited about our coach, Joey McGuire. He's a great guy. Um, you know, I'm excited about, we have a new $200 million facilities project for football that we've undertaken. And, um, so, you know, I think things are, are on their way up at tech. When you
1: say solid locker room, are you referring to not having a team where you got the three or four studs that got paid millions of dollars and it kind of spoils the whole culture? Cause you have these super chickens and then everybody else that's not kind of being maintained at the same level. Yeah. I mean, are? like,
0: all right, you're a senior or junior receiver. you worked your tail off. You're a very productive player you know you're not getting anything but this kid who's never played it down just got a million bucks yeah where's my money yeah you know and so that just creates dissension and frustration and it it doesn't help your team and again football is a team sport right well tech can any players get paid above and beyond what matador gives them sure the matador club contracts are non-exclusive so they get the money from matador which is like their base salary and then they can go out and get a deal in the community. And we have another group that's helping them get those deals. And they're getting a lot of them because Lubbock's a fairly big market for a college town. It's the biggest, tech is the biggest thing going on there. So the businesses really support and step up and want the players to be on their commercials, want them to do social media for them. And so there are a lot of opportunities for those kids out there. And, um, you know, so they're doing well there. And so they're getting their money and that's fine. That's commercial. It's a business, you know, making a business decision to pay these kids. That's fantastic. And it puts more money in their pocket, but. Overall, we have a very solid group of kids that are happy, and um you know it's in it, and, and so I think it's it's working pretty well,
1: okay. The kids get the twenty five grand um, obviously that's a huge help. Is there anything that Matador club or tech's doing or y'all are doing to give these kids also more life skills like financial literacy and things that they can take with them back out into the real world?
0: Yeah, that's been a big concern with all this because like you know when they make this money, it's taxable, so you know, at a very basic level, they need to learn know how to file a tax return. And so, um, you know, immediately when we we, we signed the contracts with them, we told them that, we said, look, you guys need to set aside money because you're going to have to pay taxes. But beyond that, we have financial, a financial literacy program that is a part of all this that is, explains to them the long-term value of actually keeping that money, saving and investing it in those things. And so if you hold back whatever amount you hold back, you're going to have this much at the end of your college career, which a lot of them don't understand. So don't go spend it on you know, cars and shoes and all that kind of stuff. Be be wise with it because yeah. your expenses are actually pretty low, so you can you can hold back a lot of money and, and do a lot of things. But I think that that aspect of it is actually a pretty big side benefit to this. Now, not many kids, you know, athletes, are not come out of college knowing how to file a tax return, you know, having any idea what to do with money. And so these kids are now going to have the opportunity to learn those lessons and hopefully grow up. And so you know, transition into the real world will be a little bit easier. So. I feel pretty good about that part of it. I think we're going to have some bad stories, despite whatever we tell them or teach them. Some people are not going to make the right choices, but kids. yeah, they're kids. But um, we're doing the best we can to make sure that they at least understand uh, what they need to do and what they should be doing. And I, I think that, that um, again, that's going to be a pretty good side benefit of this whole NIL thing.
1: I know you said we're in the Wild West. Um, when we talk about A&M, who has an alumni base and, and total funds available, that's you know, God knows how much. Yeah. Is part of the wild west figuring out how you don't get these 15 to 20 power schools that have all the money and eventually kind of create their own league um well, similar I to what think, like
0: live golf has done in, in the golf world yeah I, well i mean and live's blowing up right you know it's not yeah. doing great but i think that um it's going to be interesting i think that could happen but i think it's going to happen in ways that people might not expect because a lot of the perennial powerhouse programs don't have the wealth in their alumni base, or the size of alumni base that some of the, you know, next tier do, like, you know, like Alabama has been pretty outspoken against this stuff because they just can't compete with Texas A&M when it comes to NIL. Alabama is a relatively poor state. Um, they have not had a long history of giving in their program. They only have a handful of million dollar plus donations. Texas Tech actually has more capacity on the NIL side than Alabama does, which is interesting. So I think it could reshuffle the deck, and it will reshuffle the deck quite a bit. Some schools are going to rise up; they can do it. And others that can are going to have a little more struggle. Uh, But, you know, places like A&M, as long as they do it the right way, could really benefit from it. Now, I think they probably did it the wrong way at the front end because they paid a bunch of recruits a bunch of money. And now they're having issues within their team and in their locker room. And um, so they have to get a little more organized and disciplined about it. But um, it's not my business. I'm not trying to tell the Aggies how to do things. But I would say that people just need to be careful. (laughs) People need to be careful with how how they implement it and how they do it. But more than anything, just make sure they're not hurting the kids more than they're helping them. Well, and
1: that's something that when you wrote, I think your first piece was how do we give, how do we keep kids getting the best all around experience? Because a half a percent of them are going to go pro, 99 and a half percent of them have to enter society again and, and live a, a life that's not going to be paid, you know, all this pro money.
0: Yeah. I mean, they're 18 years old, they're kids. And so, and not many of them go pro. So they need to be focused on getting their education. That's the number one thing. They don't need to be transferring all over the place and never getting a degree, never making friends, never making contacts, but more than anything, they got to grow up. They got to become productive members of society, good people. You know, I know from my own personal experience, college football was great for me, developed a lot of work ethic, toughness, you know, mental toughness, physical toughness that carries me through to this day in my family life and my business life and all aspects. And so I want people to continue to have that experience that an amateur athlete has. And we've got to find ways to preserve that while also resolving some of the economic unfairness yep. that's taken place because schools and coaches, coaches make it ten million dollars a year, all that kind of stuff. It's not fair, right? Because yep. kids get a scholarship and that great that's great, but it's a definable value on that scholarship at tech. it's like twenty five thousand dollars a year. Well, that's not really equitable whenever you're talking about a coach that's making millions. Yep. multiple coaches on the staff making millions. And so we have to rectify that unfairness while also making sure that the kids, still receive the tremendous benefit that they get from participating in college athletics. And we're not just talking about a few kids, it's thousands and thousands of kids every year benefit from it. And a lot of them are the first in their family to go to college. A lot of them it's an opportunity for social mobility and we need to preserve that. Yeah. And, um, and I, I, you know, right now I'm concerned about the direction it's going, but I do think people see the same thing I see and we're going to get it right but um, it, it may take a couple of years. And is this, is this being talked about
1: just amongst, like softly amongst universities? Is, are there boards now that have formed to kind of create policy? Like who's actually making the decisions for this?
0: Well, right now, nobody. I yeah. mean, their state level legislation has happened, but it's, you know, each state has a different law and it's, you know, they're in conflict with one another in, in many cases. There's discussion on the federal level and a lot of bills have been filed. None of them are comprehensive a lot of them i don't think are very thoughtful or have good understanding of what's really going on so i think over after the election we're, there are going to be more and more conversations about this and um you know hopefully there's some hearings and some real thought put into it but it's a complicated issue you're dealing with title nine you're dealing with antitrust law um you know you're dealing with all kinds of things that are not really easy to solve and so we have to find a way to get it right and um, in a context that it actually functions and works legally, but also practically. Yep. We were chatting the other night. Um, you have
1: built and sold three businesses. You're involved in, in a, several others. You've become one of the preeminent leaders at Texas Tech and um, you know, have, have started to uh, just emerge as a figure that's, that's helping a lot of people out. What is it that continues to motivate you? You're, you're still relatively young and have a lot lot of room to go. So what's, what's driving the engine?
0: Man, I think that it goes back to what I was talking about with the, you know, why people aren't enter- entering the industry. Um, you know, ultimately, when we think about working, we think about money, you know, and you go to work to make money every day. But really, money is just kind of a short-term thing. What you really need is purpose. Like you need to have a reason for doing what you're doing um and you get to a point where you have enough money and you you that comes into focus even more yep in order to stay motivated you have to have a reason for doing what you're doing and for me i feel like i'm actually doing a lot of good you know talked about the good that the oil and gas industry does for the world but you know i strongly believe that um, the greatest tool that we have ever invented is free market capitalism when it comes to helping people improve the quality of their lives, bringing people out of poverty. And that's been empirically proven over the last couple hundred years. You know, we, we've shown that capitalism and free markets are very, very important. And so in order for free markets to function, you have to have entrepreneurs that are willing to go out and take risks and do things and build businesses. And, um, you know, that's John and me, or John and I are good at that, right? And so we have a real talent and real ability And so I feel the moral obligation to continue to engage in commerce because the deals that I do with with other companies, with their own people, it helps them and it makes their lives better. Uh And so, you know, that's, that's the biggest motivator for me at this point is just that I have this ability and now I have a lot of experience and know-how. And so I need to go out and use it. If I didn't, I'd be, you know, I'd be a real piece of crap. And, you know, you and I probably grew up with people I know I did who you know might not have graduated from high school they're lazy you know they sit around they never do anything And people like oh that guy's you know that guy's trash that guy's a piece of crap he just sits around doesn't do anything but a person who makes a bunch of money and goes sits on a beach you don't think anything about that guy you're like yeah good for him he's sitting on a beach well i kind of think about it the other way if i were to just go sit on a beach i would be a way bigger piece of crap because i actually have a lot of ability to help a lot of people a lot more than that other guy because i have you know i have god-given ability i have you know, experience now. I have resources. I have ability to raise capital, and so you know, I can do a lot and help a lot of people. And so, like I said, I am very feel very strongly morally obligated to go out and do something with that, engage in commerce, do deals, build businesses, and so that's what I'm going to continue to do as long as I feel like that is my highest and best use. And right now, that's certainly the case.
1: Yeah, Cody, man, I really appreciate you coming for round two. Thanks, Thanks a lot, for joining. Chris. Appreciate Enjoy it. it, man everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions.
0: The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.